Exodus chapter 4. Much like Romans 16, one of those in-between passages that nobody really knows what to do with. Much less with that mixed in, added one of the most complicated grammar issues in the Old Testament outside of the book of Hosea. So it's an easy sermon today and an easy passage. Um, I would encourage you particularly to pay attention um, in verses 24, 25, and 26. Um, your uh, footnote in the old ESV is when it says Moses, it's going to have a little footnote and it'll say his. Uh, just to tip my hand before we even get there, the word Moses is not in the text anywhere. Uh, it's not Moses. Just know that when we get there. All right, this is God's word starting in Exodus uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, said to him, Please, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt. For all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place, on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went, met him at the mountain of God, and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words the Lord, sorry, all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all of the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. He did the signs in sight of the people. And the people believed. And then when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for difficult passages. 
so much easier to be reminded that we are called to be submissive. So much easier to understand our limited wisdom, (laughs) our limited perspective. And again, it, it reinforces that longing for the life to come where we may know these answers more fully. Until then, give light and life to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have heard it in the news this last week, I guess. It's a tragedy, really. Uh, And I'm not saying that sarcastically. Anyway, it's genuinely a tragedy. Uh, At one of the wildcat reserves up in North Carolina, you saw that in the news? A lion got out of its enclosure killed a young lady. She was an intern. She was, uh, you know, been there for, what, three weeks? And it mauled her, and she died, and it was a terrible, terrible thing. And then having to hear the director of the, you know, Wildcat Conservatory saying, yeah, we have all of these rules in place. We're not sure how it happened. We're not sure how it got out. We're, we're not sure who made the mistake or how it made the mistake, but we're you know, terribly sorry for this young girl's family. And you know, oh, it's terrible. And to think how, how difficult it would be to work at one of those types of places or to work with like, you know, the extremely venomous snakes you know, to work with those to see, it'd be unbelievably difficult, you know, to not get lackadaisical for just one moment. Because all it takes is one. All it takes is one mistake, and then the next thing you know, your facility's in the news, and it's a tragedy, and somebody's lost a daughter. And it's terrible. And I would think that the hardest part would be not neutering the animals. And I don't mean that in the sense of like actual like spay and neutering. I mean that neutering them from the danger in our own minds. It would be the hardest part of it all is to not grow complacent to think, oh, it's just an ordinary cat. Or, oh, it's just an ordinary snake. Or, oh, it's just an ordinary thing. And forgetting for just one brief second that this is death incarnate in front of you. It would be hard to remember the appropriate level of terror. And it's interesting, I say that because, you know, snakes and big cats and other sorts of critters like that, because I think we see this happen all of the time in our own lives with our God. Out of all the things that God is, He's not nice and He's not safe, He is kindness. He is love. He is wisdom. He is refuge for his people. But he's not neutered. He's not like some big cat that's been declawed and defanged that's just really big and really adorable that we want to cuddle up with and is a delight and a friend and all kinds of squishy. Yet we tend to do that, don't we? We tend to think of him, as I've said so often, as a giant superhero. Or sometimes as some sort of kind of divine binky to make us feel better. I'm, I'm upset. I'm, I'm emotional. I don't know what to do with things. I'll turn to my giant body pillow of God and cuddle and make myself feel better. 
You know, and honestly, some passages might work for that. You can kind of preach that, I guess. But the problem is if you take that neutered, safe, easy, sort of unthreatening, non-threatening form of God, you can't do justice to passages like this. Because I'll be honest with you, this is difficult. You may not have gotten all of the reasons why it's difficult on the first reading, but there, it, every movement in this section, every little snapshot, pericope, every little piece of the story is brutally challenging to our notion of a safe and tidy vanilla God. Chapter 4, when we get to verse 18, we've ended the interchange between God and Moses on the mountain, and it's finally time for Moses to go. For the first time, we really see him do something positive other than curiosity. He goes back to his father-in-law and asks politely in the way that the ancient Near East would appropriately ask. It's interesting to think of an 80-year-old man asking his father-in-law for permission to go, but the reality is this is a social nicety. Father-in-law, to show proper deference to you, to show proper respect for your authority. Can I go back to Egypt? I want to check on my people. And Jethro, with again appropriate uh, elegance and dignity, says, Shalom. Go in peace. It's appropriate. It's fine. It's good to go. And you get the impression that that's good and that's great, but the story seems to stall a bit. Maybe Moses is ready to go to Egypt, but maybe he just takes his time packing. Maybe he kind of has gotten permission, but he begins dragging his feet. It's interesting. The Lord then chimes in in verse 18, like Moses needs additional affirmation. Oh, yeah, by the way, I know you're not really going as quick as you should. Everybody that you're afraid of, they're all dead. Be at peace. And this was a common occurrence. Uh, Your crimes were connected to the Pharaoh under which they were committed. So when Pharaoh died, his crimes would have been removed from him. His death sentence would have no longer been lingering over his head. It's weirdly enough, quite likely, it's actually two Pharaohs removed from that. But again, Moses is telling this in such a way he's not the hero of the story. Go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life or dead. Okay, good, great. So Moses takes his wife and his sons. Good job. All right, we like it. Loads him up on a donkey and begins to go back to the land of Egypt. And in one hand, he has the staff of God. And everything's good. And then the conversation starts. And then the problems kind of begin. And then our challenges are introduced. The Lord says to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I've put in your power. 
great, I like it. That's to be expected. You've given me amazing miracles. I can take this staff. I can chuck it down. It turns into this giant serpent. I can pick it up. It turns back into a staff. That's amazing. I can take my hand and put it in my coat, pull it out, and it's leprous. Put it back in, and it's clean. Put it back in, it's leprous. Put it back in, it's clean. An amazing little trick with that one. Uh, you can take water from the Nile, pour it out. It turns to blood when it hits the ground. I mean, amazing. All right, yes, the story's good. Until you get this next little nugget of info. Go do all of these miracles for Pharaoh. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And I'll be honest with you, I love watching the commentators squirm with this one. This word is used in the neighborhood of about 20 times in the book of Exodus. And the actor, the one doing it, about 13 of those times is God. And the recipient, about 13 of those times, is Pharaoh. And of those 20 times or so, about four of them, maybe five, are Pharaoh doing it to himself. You see, here God is introducing the theme of the book. That he will send his man down to Egypt, and he will send his man down to Egypt equipped with miracles, and then God will harden his heart. Well, that's awkward. Well, maybe the story gets better. Maybe God hardening his heart doesn't have a bad end. Let's see. Maybe it gets better. Verse 22. Then you'll say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. That's amazing. We often think of our God as father. The scriptures are abundantly clear with that. In fact, actually, when they ask Jesus to teach them how to pray, that's exactly how he begins our father. The amazing thing about this sentence here is this is the first time Israel is ever called that in the scriptures. This is the first time that concept is introduced. This is the first time that it's labeled that God would be father to his people. Israel's my firstborn son. All right, I like it. This is, this is a good story. Pharaoh's heart's hard, but oh, okay, maybe we can work around that. Israel's the firstborn. I like this. Say to Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve you. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Whoa, well, that didn't go well at all now, did it? You see what God is setting up here, even in his precursor to Moses as Moses is traveling. Uh, you talk about car conversations, right? You get in the most interesting conversations in the car with families. That's why I sometimes turn the screens off and just listen and learn in the car. But uh, here it's a car conversation and God drops this neat, tidy little bomb on Moses. And we, knowing the rest of the story, know exactly what's happening. God's foreshadowing the 10th plague, isn't he? Oh, yeah, by the way, Egypt's not going to let him go, not going to let Israel go, so I will force him and I will kill all of the firstborn of Egypt. 
And again, I guess you kind of have to back out a little bit to see the significance of this. The firstborn son today doesn't really have that much significance because most sons are firstborn sons today. I mean, think about it. Men in the room. How many men in the room alone? How many of you are firstborn son? Right? Most of the men in the room are firstborn son. Because most men today are firstborn son because we don't have that many children anymore. Right? The birth rate is low. Even to the point where, you know, some of the nations of the world are actually shrinking because they're not having enough babies. But in this time, right, no normal birth control, nothing to do after dark. There are lots of children, lots of sons. It gets worse, by the way. There's a couple of euphemisms showing up that are much more uncomfortable. So the firstborn son is significant. It's significant to Israel. It's going to show up later in the law that the firstborn son's going to get double privileges. It's going to get uh, double pride. He's going to be kind of the name of the family. He will be the one who carries on the line. But in Egypt, it was even more significant. The firstborn was, in essence, the ruler. He was the one. And in fact, actually, you could even view Pharaoh as the firstborn of the gods. And his firstborn son would be the firstborn of Egypt. He would be the one who would take the land. And you see, already God is setting up again. It's me versus the gods of Egypt. It actually lets us in a little bit into why God hardens Pharaoh's hearts. Pharaoh's heart is hardened so that the fullness of God's wrath would be displayed so that the fullness of his love for Israel would be displayed so that you would get to see in the scripture all of the gods of Egypt be put down like a sick, diseased animal gets put down at the vet. That God will destroy them all. There will be no competition. There will be no difficulty. There will be no real even combat for God will simply wipe them off the planet. When was the last time you met somebody that worshipped Ra? Just out of curiosity. I I can't say. I'll be honest. I've met a lot of weird people in my life. I've done a lot of weird things. I've not met that. God here framing out the significance of the firstborn son that he is going to show his victory over Egypt. Now, as Christians, we we automatically hear this. New Testament Christians, I guess, better way to say this. We hear foreshadowing, don't we? We hear the foreshadowing, not simply of the 10th plague, but of the great firstborn son. We hear the foreshadowing of King Jesus who should having the the greatest place of honor in all of time and space and yet God would kill him in our places. Staggering, staggering reversal. But it is interesting That here, even the way that God frames out this initial interchange, this car conversation with Moses, it's that of life and death in which he's hardening hearts and killing people for it. Our God is not quite so neat and tidy and safe and nice as we might like. He's good. He's goodness. He's kind. He is kindness. He's gentleness. 
but he's not nice. 24. I mean, if you think the first part's hard, oh. All right, so I, again, I have to be a bit of a grammar nerd here, and I'm sorry. Your English translations try to help because Moses intentionally makes this vague, and it's hard. Because we love to use pronouns, but pronouns are only as useful as how clear the antecedent is. And if you don't know what that means, think about having a conversation with your spouse. And they make one of those jumps in thinking and go, well, yes, you know what she said, and I can't believe she said this. And you're like, can you clue me in for a moment on who the she is? Because I miss that jump altogether. Moses does that here in telling this. He immediately jumps in with all the he's and him's and he's and him's with no, prone, with no antecedents, with no nouns given along the way. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Most conservative commentators, Dick and I, all agree on this one, that the put him to death is not Moses. It's his firstborn son. And you think it makes a a natural transition from the previous paragraph. God has already said, Israel is my firstborn son. And because Egypt is wronging my firstborn son, I will kill their firstborn son. And oh yeah, by the way, if you're not careful, I will kill your firstborn son. And I love how Moses intentionally doesn't give us all the details as to what this looks like. I mean, you got to get them kind of putting in a modern illustration. It's like they're, you know, on the long road trip and they have a bathroom break. Maybe they need some fast food or pull off at a rest stop so that everybody can stretch their legs. Maybe the dog in the back of the car needs to go for a quick run and they pull over on the side and the angel of the Lord is there ready to deal death. Oh, no. We found the wrong rest stop. We should have gone to the next one. And in one of the most kind of shocking interchanges thus far in the scriptures, Zipporah, Moses' wife, pulls out a flint knife and circumcises her son and then touches his feet with it. Again, there's no noun there. They interject Moses here to try to help you. That's the wrong noun. And it's also because they're missing the euphemism. It's a really awkward euphemism. Touches his feet. I'll give you another illustration as to what this euphemism is referring to, so hopefully you figure it out. A couple of chapters previously, when the Hebrew midwives were delivering children, it says that they're supposed to look to see if the child is a boy and then kill it. The actual Hebrew is... They're supposed to look for the stones and then kill it. It's not actually look to see if it's a boy or a girl. It literally in the Hebrew is look for the stones. Likewise, feet is one of those words that's used as a euphemism for the stones. Yeah, you get the picture as to what's actually happening now, don't you? Mom sees the angel of death coming and puts two and two together. This is the God of the covenant. 
This is the God who has promised all blessing to his people. This is the God who has created an arrangement, this covenant arrangement, a life and death arrangement. But the mark of the covenant would be circumcision. And oh no, the great leader of this covenant right now, his own son, isn't marked with the covenant. You see, actually, here in just this, let me get to the right page here, in the, this brief few sentences, it explains a lot really about Moses. Moses has met with the living and true God. As much face-to-face, really, as anyone, maybe since Adam, close to, if not. I mean, the burning bush. And as he gets ready to go down to Egypt, Moses has not even been disciplined enough to actually give the mark of the covenant to his own kids. Moses is not, at this point, what we would call a faithful man. Even to the point where when it comes time for the mark of the covenant to be given to his own child, it is the daughter of a pagan priest who does it. So she circumcises her son, takes the blood and smears it around his upper thigh. And makes this amazing statement, which I'm going to suggest the ESV completely botches. Surely you are a relative of blood to me. Now, ESV translates this as bridegroom, which is really uncomfortable because that's the same word used in, I think, verse 16 to refer to Jethro. Moses went back to Jethro, his bridegroom, and said to, no, it's father-in-law. Because the word that is put here is a word that specifically means blood relative. It means someone who's close, that you share intimacy with. It means part of the family. And it's interesting that she gives her child the mark of God and then immediately says, you're now part of my family. a relative of blood because of the circumcision. I have to say, I think Zipporah's work here is one of the most shocking and faithful acts we've seen in much of the early Old Testament. To think, how did she even know about this in the first place? She's not Israelite, right? The last 40 years while Moses has been, uh, you know, tending sheep, you got to think she's been asking and learning and maybe he's been teaching, but everything she knows about the God of Israel, she's learned from Moses because she's not Israelite. She grew up a pagan. And yet here, when it comes time to meet God, the destroyer, she understands the only way you meet God and live is on God's terms. It's not on mine. The only way you meet God's wrath and survive is on God's terms. It's not on mine. And so she appeals to the only thing that she knows, God's promise. Here is the physical incarnation of God's promise. Please leave my child alone. There is so much good theology 
in what she does at this moment. I mean, it probably wasn't the most delicate of knife work. I'm going to suggest probably a bit rushed with the angel of the Lord seeking to destroy your firstborn right behind you. But unbelievable theology that she understands. And the interesting thing is, again, how much do we likewise just forget that same principle? We think, oh, well, God's just like me. He wants to know me because I'm so special to be known. I mean, I like myself so much. He should like me that much too. And to forget the only way we come into his presence and live is on his own terms. It's not on our terms. It's on his. And yet, how often have we done this? And I'm going to suggest as Americans, we have excelled in this. This will be one of our little asterisks in history should the Lord allow for the church to continue for a lengthy period of time before Jesus comes back. It'll be this American church excelled at trying to do things their own way. Not God's. Our God is not quite so safe as we make him out to be. Think about just the emotional turmoil that Moses and Zipporah would have to have gone through. Moses is like fresh off the mountain. He's met the living God and now God shows up to kill him after having just given, kill his son, just after having given him signs to take to Pharaoh. Don't mess around with God. It's quite likely, actually, that the circumcision was done hastily enough that they actually have to stop and heal. (laughs) Because we know that she actually either doesn't make it all the way to Egypt, or Zipporah and the kids make it to Egypt but don't stay and then immediately have to leave. Because we don't hear about them again until chapter 18 when they show up with Jethro coming from Midian. Because she's not in Egypt with Moses. It's interesting, she has greater faith than Moses at this point. She's the hero of the story. Continues into the next movement, the next little portion of the story with this interchange between Moses and Aaron. And there's so many questions here. How did Aaron even get out of Egypt in the first place? I would love to know that. I'll ask him when I get to glory. How did you get out of there? Did you get permission? Did you run? How did you know Moses was in Midian? Did God tell you exactly where he was? How do you find a guy in the middle of the Arabian Peninsula? It is a fairly significant place. Obviously, the Lord leads him in some fashion. Go into the wilderness to meet Moses, God says to him, as he's already made it out of Egypt. He's made it up into the uh, Sinai Peninsula. The Lord points him into the exact place. It's interesting. We're going to see after uh, they come out of Egypt, this is the exact same location that Moses re-meets Jethro uh, and his wife and children. Moses tells Aaron all of this, and Aaron is excited and kisses him and rejoices and is glad. And again, not to overlook the significance of that. The last interchange they had was most likely the interchange where Moses is like, seriously, brother, I just killed a man and now I got to run for my life. Help me pack my stuff. 
You got to think 40 years ago, I mean, it's been four decades and the last conversation they had was either right before Moses killed somebody or right after they killed somebody. And you don't know how this interchange is going to go, but it's one of joy and gladness because God said it would be. He told Moses that earlier. They rejoice. They're glad together in verse 29, Moses and Aaron get into Egypt. They gather together all of the elders of the people of Israel. And interestingly, again, verse 30, it's a pronoun with no antecedent. Your ESV says Aaron. I'm not sure I'm actually going to concede that. Your ESV says in verse 30, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. I'm, I'm not sure it's only Aaron speaking because I've said from the very beginning, Moses actually has a great voice. Moses intentionally does not use his own name there, but they do all of the signs in the people. Signs in the sight of the people and the people believe, which is staggering in its own right. And they hear that God had visited and they bow their heads and worship. Which again, us knowing the rest of the story, it's like, what? These people worship? I mean, these are ones going to be complaining about getting out of Egypt just a little bit. Like just a couple of chapters and there are going to be grumbles, you know, grumble gusts for the rest of the book. Like, I do not understand. But yet God has done it. So what on earth do you do with a passage like this? I mean, if you're the preacher, how do you preach it? We've walked through, we understand, I think, fairly accurately what the passage says. How do we apply this? I would suggest first and foremost to be reminded that God is a little bit bigger than what you realize. And that is fully sarcastic. You know, we we live in a land that excels at narcissism. There are a few things that we have figured out how to package and market and sell and transmit quite as well as narcissism. I mean, we can transmit a rhinovirus, a cold, like nobody's business, but narcissism, man, that stuff is contagious. We like to look at the scriptures and to find ourselves as the hero in every story. I love doing that as we go through Bible studies together. You, you look at the parables. It's always we're injecting ourselves so frequently into the hero of the story. You get to the end of Moses' life and everybody kind of chuckles because at the end it says he was the most humble man on earth. And you think about the way he's introduced himself in the passage, I would believe it. Because honestly, as so far, Moses has told not a single good thing about himself. Think about every story that's been so far. The hero has been someone else. Because he's trying to get you to understand that the hero is God. It always has been God. And it always will be God. Moses, one of the great men of church history, one of the great men of the faith, and he's trying to get the reader to understand he's not the important one. God is. And maybe for us to sometimes be reminded that even we aren't the important ones. God is. You know, when it comes time to think about the dynamics of this church, guess what? I'm not the important one. God is. I can be replaced. The session, not the important ones. God is. They can be replaced. The diaconate, the people, the nursery workers, the Sunday school teacher, we're not the center of the story. God is. 
And I'm going to be honest with you, as we would begin to understand that process to, to reorient our values, to see God as the center of the story, what freedom it gives. To take away pressure. <coughs> That performance anxiety that some live with, that unbelievable crippling burden of guilt that some live with, that constant sense of self-doubt that some live with, it takes all of that away because God is the hero in the story. God is the mighty one. He controls even the heart of the mightiest king on the planet. God is the one that is in charge. Secondly, would I suggest provide a sense of safety once we begin to realize how unsafe he is. Let me unpack that for a moment. We talk all of the time in the Psalms about how the Lord is our refuge. And we talk all of the time like maybe we could hide beneath the wing of God like a baby chick hides underneath Mama Hen. That's one of the illustrations used in the Psalms. We have, he's our, our rock. He's our strong tower. And unfortunately, sometimes I think we tend to think of God as like a giant safety blanket in that regard. You know, like a child that gets scared and maybe it's monsters under the bed and I'll put my covers over my head and I'll, I'll hide from that. The new trend, I don't know if you've seen this, and uh, this Christmas was the weighted blankets. Have you seen this? They're blankets that have like lead pellets or whatever sewn inside, weights inside them. So the blanket itself weighs 25 pounds and it's sold as an anxiety reducing blanket. That's the marketing scheme. It's a blanket designed to reduce anxiety because it's like it's hugging you and supporting you. And I laugh because I'm like, it's a blanket. It can't reduce anxiety that much. But a God who commands legions of angels, one of which killed 185,000 people in one night, that's comforting when he's on my side. Better said, when I'm on his side. A God who finds his values so important, so true, that he uses the death of nations to display his character, to display his love for his people. Well, that's comforting. A God who's taken my sin so seriously that he sent his own son to the cross, his own firstborn, to kill that one so that I would find peace and rest. Well, that's comforting. You think about when we pray for the persecuted church and we say that the God would be their, their vindicator. That's not really that comforting if he's just a giant safety blanket. I don't know if you caught Jeremiah's prayer today. It was right. But he specifically prayed for the death of God's enemies. It was right. It was true. It was 100% biblical. If you don't believe me, go read Psalm 137. But when we hold to a God who is mighty, who will defend his people, and even with violence, well, now there's a hope. I love this, and I've used this illustration before, but the men who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith, our, our denomination's document, it was written in the 1640s as an effort to keep the uh, English that were non-reformed from killing them, basically. It was their, ah, 
don't kill us anymore. This is what we believe. Don't execute us. In their catechism question about what happens at the resurrection, it is interesting that their first answer is the people of God will be vindicated. They will be vindicated. They will be shown right and victorious because God is right and victorious. I'll end with this. Some of us in the room, we don't understand this because we're on the wrong side. Honestly, we're fighting against this God. We're resisting against this God. Or we're seeking to make him as safe and as simple and as easily handled as possible. We're trying to find some sort of cliff notes for him to reduce him to a manageable piece of information. Repent. You couldn't be more wrong. There are others of us that desperately want to know that God, to be known by that God, to be defended by that God. And in that case, I would say submit. Find peace and rest in his character and in his works, for he is the mighty God. This mighty God has injected himself inside time and space once as a simple baby. Helpless and harmless. But the next time it will not be that way. It will not be as one who is helpless and harmless as a baby. It will be the rider, great and victorious, described in Revelation. Find comfort and consolation in that. Let's pray. Oh God, may we find rest in your perfect promises. Forgive us. Forgive us for viewing you as so small. Forgive us for viewing you as some sort of cartoon character. One to be lampooned. One who is the ultimate non-threatening grandfather. Oh God, forgive us. Let us marvel at your might and your power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.